Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast, where we explore the life and times of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur and delve into the history of World War I, World War II, and the Korean War. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. In March 2019, author Ann Todd visited the MacArthur Memorial to discuss her book, OSS Operation Blackmail. Howdy, y'all. Thanks for coming tonight. It's a real honor to be here. OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. It's often been referred to as the precursor or the predecessor to the CIA. And it was, but it also gave birth to special forces, the National Security Agency, and what we now call uh, area studies programs in university departments. It was also a quirky fly-by-night outfit that made things up as it went along. The tractors sometimes called OSS people things like oh-so-social, spies with ties, the inmates running the asylum. My favorite is a PhD who could win a bar fight. So when America entered the war in 1941, not everyone who wanted to serve was fit for military service. I've compiled a short list of characters who found a home in OSS. In addition to every ethnic group and nationality, we had cartoonists and scholars, movie stars, film producers, artists, journalists, priests, dog trainers, safe crackers, members of the canine corps, carrier pigeons, and one elephant was on the roll by the end of the war. When Pearl Harbor was attacked December 7, 1941, there was no agency of government charged with the gathering of intelligence. No part of the military was training for commando-style warfare, and no one wanted anything to do with psychological warfare, which was considered to be that most distasteful of activities. Thanks to one man, William J. Donovan, Medal of Honor winner, Wall Street lawyer, uh, the groundwork for just such an organization had been laid. Donovan was not without his detractors, one of whom is uh, the uh, namesake for this memorial, but it was also a sizable contingent of the United States government, including, but not limited to, the State Department, the FBI, and pretty much the entire command structure of the U.S. military. But he had two very important people in his camp. Franklin Delano Roosevelt loved all things secret and cloak and dagger. And Winston Churchill wanted to set Europe ablaze with the same kind of psychological warfare the Nazis had been dishing for years. Subject of my book, Elizabeth P. McIntosh. Born on 1915 and lived to be 100 years old. Betty was a reporter. She served in OSS. She worked for the State Department, the Voice of America, served a long career in the CIA. She wrote two children's books and one excellent book on women in the OSS, which is how I found her. I knew Betty the last five years of her life, and she often told me that the 18 months she spent in OSS were the very best of her life. And I wanted to know why, because I felt this would give me some insight into this legendary organization. Admiral William McRaven once said of OSS, there was just something mythical 
about the Office of Strategic Services. Betty was the daughter of two newspaper reporters. She grew up in Hawaii. In high school, she was what I would call a popular loner, captain of the tennis team. Uh, she worked on the yearbook and the newspaper. Her teachers were very fond of her, remembered her as very bright and incredibly mischievous. But at the end of every day, she walked home alone to spend time with her very best friend, Daisy the Elephant, at the zoo. After graduating from the University of Washington with a journalism degree, she moved back to Hawaii, and her father brought her on to the Honolulu Advertiser and put her on the sports desk with him. She loathed the sports desk and contrived to get herself tossed off it by deliberately misspelling the name of Hawaii's native son, the famous swimmer Duke Kahanamoko. One good thing came from the sports desk. She met her future husband, Alexander McDonald, who was working the police beat. Betty and Alex were drawn together by a mutual love of all things Japanese. They wanted to live and work there someday. So while they're, after they got married in 1940, while their house was being built by a little-known architect named Philip Johnson, they lived with a Professor Watanabe and his wife so they could learn how to live in a traditional Japanese home and become fluent in the language. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, Betty was making breakfast in their new house. Alex got up and put his uniform on. He was a Lieutenant JG in the Naval Reserve. She didn't see him for two weeks. Everyone's life changed that day. Betty went from being a reporter in a local newspaper to a war correspondent. Scripps Howard News Service picked her up as a stringer and she reported on um, Admiral Chester Nimitz Command, Pacific Command. She wrote some excellent copy in the days and weeks to come. But the Army had slapped a lid of censorship down on the entire archipelago, and they weren't letting anything out. She tried everything. She interviewed nurses. She hitched a ride on a sampan to deliver medications to the lepers on Molokai. She climbed a, a erupting volcano and wrote about that. She tried sending articles home to her friends on the mainland to see if they could get them published. They got pieces of paper that looked like this. Then, to make things much, much worse, it came to light that Alex was one of the censors working for naval intelligence, and the mother of all marital squabbles erupted. Fortunately for Alex, Scripps Howard offered Betty a job in Washington, D.C., covering the Eleanor Roosevelt White House and she jumped on it. Her job specifically would be women's issues, especially rationing. So after a few months of writing about how much copper could be saved by melting down hooks and eyes or nickel silver from sunglasses, she grew frustrated once again. And then at an agricultural conference, as if out of the mist, which is how they did it, an OSS recruiter appeared next to her. He said, how would you like to work for the government? Something secret, possibly dangerous, and will probably send you to Asia. Betty reported to OSS headquarters on Navy Hill the minute they would let her in the gate. And the first day when she was being fingerprinted for this ID card, she met fellow recruit Jane Foster, who would become her best friend and partner in crime. Jane was an artist of international repute. She was, uh, she did collages and caricatures. 
But Donovan had poached her from the Board of Economic Warfare for her fluency in Malay, which was the lingua franca of what was then Indonesia. I mean, what is now Indonesian at the time was the Netherlands East Indies. This is one of her sketches she did of her personal servant. His name was Dog. She tried to call him other things, but he liked his name. Betty and Jane had been recruited to a new branch of OSS called Morale Operations, where they would learn to deceive, demoralize, confuse the enemy, in this case the Japanese. And as I mentioned, Cywar was not the preferred weapon in the U.S. arsenal. One man volunteered to take it on. No one knew how to train Psy warriors in this country. And so Donovan got a lot of advice, especially from the British. I have a memo from Ian Fleming, the future author of the James Bond novels. He recommended that Donovan recruit men, mature years, serious-minded, preferably with some military background. Donovan thanked him and proceeded to recruit women. There were 4,500 in OSS by the end of the war. And anyone else who he thought would be a creative type, journalists, authors, artists, anthropologists and linguists, people who would know the dialects and cultures of the areas to be targeted for psychological warfare, people who could think outside the box. So the East Asia contingent of morale operations came to, in addition to Betty and Jane, came to include a Chinese artist, a Shanghai businessman, a private detective, the producer of the Lucky Strike Hit Parade, an Olympic broad jump champion, a patent medicine salesman, and missionaries, lots of missionaries. My personal favorite being Miss Lucy Starling, elderly, in her 80s. She demanded to be allowed to jump in to northern Thailand to set up a forward operating base. She could field strip a machine gun in seconds, blindfolded. The main tool of morale operations was black propaganda. Black propaganda goes to point of origin. You've got a faked newspaper that's made to look as though it came off the press in Honshu province when really it was printed in Delhi. A black radio station pretended to broadcast from Radio Tokyo when actually it was transmitted from a hand-crank hand uh, generator in Chittagong. I often explain this by saying Tokyo Rose did not practice black propaganda because she really was in Tokyo. It's not the lie. It's lying about where you're lying from and who you are that makes it black. This is a poem in a faked magazine it's an inducement to surrender set to verse. The Japanese loved their poetry. This is a proposal to recreate a matchbook with matches with a subversive message inside. Then as now, the Japanese love aesthetics in all things. They want beauty in ordinary life in the, in the smallest, most everyday things. So this matchbox had to be exact. The paper had to be correct. The vegetable dyes had to be correct. Even the little uh, matches had to be hand whittled and dipped the way they would be in Japan. The Japanese were not stupid. They would know the difference. And so I'm fascinated with this. The uh, cover of my book is based on it. I took um, a class from a world-famous um, woodblock artist. This is woodblock. 
And uh, I spent a whole day learning how to do it, just, you know, rudimentary. And to make something like this, you have to do a different block for each color. I spent six hours carving three blackbirds and one little spot of red. I almost cut my thumb off. It was intense. So I gained a whole appreciation for what it took to create something like this. And to make the message that goes inside had to be exactly the right kanji script with the right grass brush. So a lot of work went into these things. As the months went by, projects like this piled up in a big filing cabinet. And then finally, the summer of 1944, Betty and her crew got orders to deploy to the China-Burma-India Theater of Operations. Then, as now, most Americans didn't know China-Burma-India existed. I'm going to give a little backstory. In 1942, the Japanese invaded. General Mutaguchi's 15th Army unpacked their collapsible bicycles and they rode up the peninsula to occupy Rangoon. And soon after that, the army split. General Sato took his men and marched north up to Michina, where they would take the airfield there. The Japanese had been harassing hump pilots and British Spitfires. Lieutenant General Sato took his men up through the mountains and jungles of Burma to India, where they would invade, occupy, and move across to hook up with the Germans in Persia. But a funny thing happened when Sato got to the Kohila in Kohima Imphal Railhead. The British and their Indian Army defeated his forces on the plain of Imphal and turned him back. Sato messaged Mutaguchi and said, Our swords are broken, we're going home. So he turned his men around and they started back down through the jungles and mountains. And so that you got to understand, the topography of this part of Burma goes like this. In the morning, you can be on the jungle floor where it's pitch dark, almost 100% humidity, fetid, hot. And uh, when you pitch your tent at night, if you have one, you can be above the timberline and freezing. So when the Japanese were going north, they were on the offensive. They were winning. Their supply lines were strong. Their morale was high. When they turned around, they were a defeated force. They were down to one rice ball a day. The, uh, the Allied submarine forces in the Bay of Bengal and down in, uh, you know, the Indian Ocean were hunting, and they were sinking supply ships and transports right and left. So all of a sudden, the comfort kits stopped coming from home and the rations. So these soldiers, they're defeated, demoralized, and they're getting sick. They have dysentery and cholera and that horrible cerebral malaria that can kill you in two hours. Giant leeches are dropping from the bushes and the trees. There are poisonous snakes everywhere. My personal favorite being the two-step crate. If that thing got you, you might make it two steps before you drop. So they're delusional. You gotta imagine for most of the way, they are on what amounts to a goat path, mostly single file. And as they go through the dark jungle floor, on either side of them are giant striped tigers, keeping pace, leisurely picking these guys off. These tigers normally had to take down a water buffalo to eat. So these Japanese were like chicken McNuggets to them. 
Even the old tigers, the ones with bad teeth, were flourishing. Then the troops would go through the villages where they had raped and pillaged on their way up, and the villagers loved telling them about the weir tiger, which is, of course, nocturnal, half-human, and impervious to bullets. So not only were these soldiers terrified of the real tigers, but they had phantom tigers to worry about. Meanwhile, in northern Burma, OSS Detachment 101 was teaching the hill people how to kill Japanese more effectively. These are Kachin mountain men. The Kachin had a robust warrior culture, but they were basically fighting with clubs and spears. So the OSS guys, Det 101 guys, provided them with M1 Garands, Springfield rifles, grenades, and taught them to use them to great effect. These gentlemen are Naga headhunters. The Naga had a fierce reputation for being headhunters. OSS had high hopes for these guys, but when they met them, they were jolly, gentle folk. and didn't want to kill anything. They couldn't light a fire under them, so they kind of gave up. Then one day, the Det 101 guys were taking their midday meal, and a group of the Naga jogged up and dumped a gunny sack full of Japanese heads on the lunch table. The Americans lost their lunch, thereafter left the Naga to their own tactics and strategies. Now the point of all this is by the time Betty got into theater, these, her target, these Japanese that were strung out over Burma, were sick, they were spooked, and they were ripe to be demoralized. When uh, morale operations got into China, Burma, India, it split in two. Most everyone, including Jane, went to Detachment 404 on the island of Ceylon, um, Sri Lanka, which is now Ceylon. So here's Donovan on one of his trips through the theater. This is Colonel John Coughlin. He was the commanding officer, West Point graduate, of Det 404. In addition to Jane, we had future celebrity chef, Julia McWilliams, striking a coquettish pose here to, for the benefit of Paul Child. Julia Child. People often say, you know, she was a spy. Well, no, she wasn't. She was something much more dangerous. She was a registrar. She was in charge of all the intelligence in the theater. It came to her. She was like a clearinghouse. She decided where it needed to go to be actionable. She had a card file that was brilliant. She was indispensable to Donovan in this regard, but she never did any cloak and dagger. Paul was a um, lumberjack, artist, judo master. Um, he made three-dimensional topographical maps, that, tabletop maps, for anybody in the theater that was planning operations. He was also in love with Jane Foster. So while Julia was hovering in the background, Paul was trying to woo Jane. This is Dylan Ripley. Dr. Ripley uh, was in charge of the Smithsonian Institution for many years, but here he's a brand new PhD, ornithologist. Um, I don't know if you realize this, but bird watchers make excellent spies. They're obsessive, they're patient. I know this because I'm turning into one. Paul, I mean, uh, Dylan, if he heard the sound of the triple-breasted thrush, he would wander off into the jungle, and somebody would have to go bring him back, and it was usually Jane. 
when he wasn't doing that, he was running secret intelligence operations down into northern Thailand. This dangerous crew is Detachment 303, which went over to Delhi. And here we have Betty, right there. And she is flanked by some British officers and her colleague, Marge Severns. This is Bill Magistretti, fellow Japanese linguist. Bill had gone to middle school in Japan. He was the son of missionaries. This is Angel Puss, Betty's dog. She adopted dogs everywhere she went. And this grumpy guy is the dog walla. The British made it very clear to the Americans, you must hire wallas. You got to have your tea walla, your laundry walla, your walla that brings you hot water in the morning, and the lowest of the low is the dog walla, which is probably why he looks unhappy. The very first project, you know what, I'm gonna stop here for a second and put everything in the context of the bigger war, okay? It's July 1944, they've just gotten there. The month before, in Europe, General Mark Clark and his Fifth Army had occupied Rome in what was turning into a long slog up the Italian peninsula. The Russians, by June 22nd, had pushed the uh, German army all the way to the banks of the Vistula. The Allies had made their D-Day landing and were fighting their way through Bocage country in Normandy. On Betty's side of the world, much had happened. April 1942, Colonel James Doolittle and his raiders lifted off from the flight deck of the USS Hornet and made their bombing run over Tokyo. The Doolittle raid is important for two reasons. First of all, it did rattle and shock the Japanese high command, but it also settled a long-simmering dispute between Admiral Isoroko Yamamoto and the Naval General Staff. Yamamoto wanted Japan to stop conquering territory and instead focus on the one remaining keyhole through which the Americans could penetrate the Japanese defensive perimeter in the Pacific. Anybody want to guess where that keyhole was? The Midway Atoll. So the Doolittle Raid settled the argument in Yamamoto's favor and he was able to plan his attack on Midway. As we know, that didn't go well for him. It's not always best to win the argument. At the Battle of the Coral Sea, wonderful exhibit out there in the gallery, uh, first air-sea battle in history, stopped the Japanese, kept them from going into Australia. The Battle of Midway in uh, June destroyed the advantage the Japanese had in the Pacific. It decimated their carrier fleet. So what you've got by July of 44, when Betty gets into the theater, is the Japanese have been stopped, their supply lines have been cut, or are severely constrained, and in fact they're being pushed back. Forgot to mention, the month before she got there, American soldiers and Marines encountered a group of civilians on the island of Saipan who chose death over surrender. This played out on Guam and Tinian as well. Americans had never before encountered this kind of madness, whereby entire families would throw themselves off high cliffs to their certain deaths. And what it did was it solidified a widespread belief that the Japanese, they couldn't be persuaded, they didn't care about human life, they were possibly not even human. 
So this didn't make Betty's job any easier because people just didn't believe it was worth the trouble. So first project, Operation Blackmail. Now when she arrived, when Betty arrived, as I mentioned before, to do black propaganda, you have to have stuff. You have to have two kind of presses, an offset press and one that leaves an indentation. Got to have the right ink, the right dyes, the right pens and, and brushes. She had one box of typewriter ribbon and no typewriter. The British had everything. The British didn't like the Americans. They believed, quite rightly, that OSS Americans wanted to take their empire away from them and give it back to the subject peoples of their colonies. So Betty had to launch a charm offensive. She brushed her hair, put on a dress, and took her ration of Lucky Strike cigarettes and headed for the British camp. A British officer said, okay, in exchange for your cigarettes, I have this nasty, moldy, bloody mail bag that was captured up near Michinoff. You can dip one hand into it, and whatever you bring out with one fist, you can use. She pulled out a stack of postcards that had been written by young Japanese soldiers to their wives and mothers and girlfriends back home. Betty and Bill Magistretti quickly realized that this was not only written in pencil, but was extremely understandable farm boy Japanese that they could easily read and alter. They could erase the messages home and put their, you know, write their own. And the best part was, this is the censor's chop, which means it had already cleared all the gatekeepers. So theoretically, if they could get that mail bag back, back in the mail stream, it was going to Japan. So they began Operation Blackmail. They erased the messages, and I'll give you an example of one Betty did, a, a young soldier writing to his dear wife at home, she uh, erased his loving message and replaced it with, Dear Keiko, the situation here has become unbearable. The war is lost. Do not believe what the government is telling you. I myself have fallen in love with a Kachin maiden and have been welcomed into her village where I will remain when my unit moves on. Please go on without me. Your loving husband, Yoki. Wicked, right? I would mention here that as this project went on, some of the men in the group got terrified at the schemes that the women came up with. For example, you know, as it, as it continued, well, so Betty, you know, she gets a brick of opium, she slices off a piece, and she pays a little Burmese assassin to go out and kill a courier and plant the mailbag. And so this became ongoing. Mailbags were captured, couriers were killed, it was, it was an operation. So an example of one coming the other way from a young wife to a soldier would read something like, I have been forced <clears throat> to sleep with a local official uh, because the for rations because the children have cinched up their belts three times already. But we're fine. Hope you're doing well. Love, Chagey. This is... Um, it's a faked photo. This is, this is before Photoshop, but they would get these photos of atrocities or dead people and put them together and convince whoever found them that this was what was happening at home. 
on Japan. This is a threat letter. When the Japanese were winning, a lot of the Burmese headmen decided to pitch in their lot and become collaborators with, you know, the winners. So now it came to OSS to flip them back. So Betty came up with the idea of uh, distributing these threat letters to the village headmen. And this one, for example, would say something like, Dear blank, this is the blood of your fellow headmen in such and such a village. We found out he's helping the Japanese. Uh, you're next. And then they would prick their fingers, you know, get blood on these things, put them on the floor, walk on them for a few days, and send them out there. This is the Kimpy Tai. Kimpy Tai were the counterparts to Betty and her crew. These guys trained for years. They were the Japanese thought police. They became fluent in dialects, cultures. They were deadly. You know, Betty and her gang trained for maybe a month and just made things up as, as they went along. I would mention here that, you know, when you're doing black propaganda, it's opaque on both ends, really any kind of psychological warfare. You don't know if your target is going to get what you're sending out there. You don't even really know what your target looks like. You're just imagining it. So you're not going to get instant gratification for anything. It's not like launching a campaign. There are no clear victors in the battlefield of the mind. However, one project, JB1, was an inducement to surrender order. Betty found a Japanese POW, a Mr. Akimoto, that helped her draft an official surrender order from Japanese headquarters. It had the right chops, it had the right language, the right ink, everything. And it uh, basically said um, any orders that came before this, disregard, live to fight another day, that sort of thing. So she sent them out there with her little assassin to plant them in couriers' bags and whatnot. And uh, by the end of the war, before the end of the war, Japanese soldiers were walking out of the jungles with these things in their fist. And so it was a clear indication that you had, uh, it worked. There was one other uh, episode, the Battle of Ramri Island down on the Akyab coast, where uh, 300 Japanese surrendered after getting these sort of missives. So occasionally, occasionally, they would find out that all their work was not for naught. This is the Burma Road. It was the lifeline to China from the Allies. It ran from the uh, Lido railhead in Burma up to the uh, city of Kunming on a 7,000-foot plateau in China. The Japanese cut it in 1942, and so that's when people had to start flying the hump. It's also an exact replica of my driveway. So when Betty got orders in spring of 1945 to go to China, she had to get on a C-47 at Dum Dum Airport in Calcutta and fly the hump. That was a 581-mile gauntlet over the southern Himalayas. It, that, the mountains, I'm sure you've all heard stories about it. You know, stories about the hump are rarely exaggerated. Thousands of planes went down. The mountains were so high, these pilots had to thread between them. They couldn't fly over them. The mountains were often covered in mist, so you just, all of a sudden, a mountain would appear, and that's it. Stories, um, one pilot said he lost altitudes so fast, 
that it skinned the paint off his flashlight. I don't understand the physics of that, but I believe it, because there's a lot of stories like that. Betty looked out the windows of her airplane and could see the aluminum trail of death crosses in the snow of planes that had gone down. And those were the ones that the snow hadn't covered up yet. I mean, there were literally thousands. This is um, a wreck of one that I believe didn't even make it to the hump. Went down near Chittagong. Loss of all hands. This is uh, the blood chit that was sewn inside Betty's uh, flight jacket. It basically said, help this foreigner. She's a friend. Don't turn her into the Japanese, that sort of thing. Most everyone had a silk one sewn inside their flight jacket. So Betty was going to the ancient city of Kunming, as I mentioned, on a 7,000-foot plateau. At the base of that plateau were the Japanese, surging up and back, which meant she was behind enemy lines. This, this city, um, Marco Polo, had gone through it. It was very ancient. At this time, it's the uh, base of the Flying Tigers. When they had to evacuate from Rangoon, they flew to Kunming. Claire Chenault, the commanding officer of the Flying Tigers. This is Colonel Richard Hepner. He was a commanding officer of Detachment 202 in China and Betty's new CO. This is Sammy, Colonel Hepner's dog, who immediately became smitten with Betty. Sammy came over the Burma Road before it was cut. The GI that drove the truck shared his gin ration with him. So until the day he died, lived a long life, when Betty had her martini in the evening, Sammy took his in a saucer. Here Betty is with um, her helpers. So in China, it was different from in India and Ceylon. Over there, they just made things up. They sat around and they schemed and they brainstormed. What, what can we do that will really upset the Japanese and get them, you know, weak their, weaken their will? In China, it was an ongoing publication of magazines and newspapers. Uh, so it was more like going back to work for a regular, you know, newspaper. This is a black poem that they, uh, is a proposal for it to print up in a, in a, um, in a magazine. Again, you've got your woodblock, but much more simple. This picture was taken the summer of 1945 during the flood of Kunming. Um, it's taken by a famous artist named William Smith, who worked with Betty in morale operations. Um, at the very end of the war, before the Japanese out on the various places even knew the war was over, OSS was tasked with getting out there and finding allied soldiers and civilians that were in all these POW camps and internment camps and rescuing them. And they would often land, you know, and confront Japanese who didn't believe that the war was over. It's quite amazing none were killed. So anyway, William Smith, uh, he was sent out to record this with his paints and watercolors. But here, right after he took this picture, he picked Betty up and threw her in the water in retaliation for her sewing his sergeant stripes on upside down when he got promoted. Now we know the British stopped the war every day for tea. 
OSS had parties. So about once a week, they would print up an invitation. They would put on their formal attire, mix up some bathtub gin, and have a dance. The last week in July, Betty stopped at the black radio station in Kunming on the way to the MO tent to get coffee. The scriptwriter, Cy Nadler, was stomping up and down in a complete swivet because he couldn't come up with anything that he thought he could beam into Japan that would really upset them. He was blocked. Betty says, how about you have one of your fake prognosticators predict a great catastrophe the first week of August? You know, something from the sky with fire. Nadler basically said, that's so lame, no. But he couldn't think of anything else, so he went with it. She flew off to Chongqing to the OSS base there, and when she came back August 6th, her great catastrophe had happened, and her CO was looking for her, wanting to know how she knew that. OSS was summarily disbanded October 1st, 1945. Bill Donovan basically received a form letter from President Truman saying, thank you for your service, we don't need you anymore. This is years later, this is Betty at Bill Donovan's grave in Arlington. Um, up behind her would be Bill Magistretti, Claire Chenault, uh, Dick Hepner, and her other two husbands. Betty had three happy marriages. Here she is at age 98, and uh, she's happy because I'm bringing her a glass of wine. Here she is hiding behind the OSS flag, mischievous to the last. And that's my presentation. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.